Well, good morning. I am delighted to have the opportunity to open the scriptures to get together again. Uh, and this morning we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've had the opportunity to spend some time at my father-in-law's house in Kansas City. He lives on a lake just outside of Kansas City. And um, just recently, my eldest son, Finn, decided that he was ready for the flippy tube. The flippy tube is the, the more adult version of tubing behind the boat. It's a smaller tube that is, flies with great velocity and oftentimes flips, hence the name flippy tube. And he had asked if I would be willing to do it with him. And so there we were back behind the water getting situated on this smaller tube that whips around behind the boat with velocity and hits the wake and gets air and all sorts of things that are a bit unnerving, I must admit, for both of us. And as we were back in the water getting situated on this little tube and the boat was starting to pull ahead, Finn said to me, I'm having second thoughts about this, Dad. Having a lot of second thoughts. I think I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm rethinking this, Dad. I'm, I thought about it, now I'm rethinking it. I'm having second thoughts with that sort of velocity. He was telling me, I, I don't know about all of this. And I, I realized that in many ways that that's how life's adventures work, are they not? That's how, when we start to lean in on something that we think we're, we want to step into, something we think we're called to, there's that moment where, as it relates to the tube, where the, the rope starts to get taut and the engine of the boat starts to engage and you go, oh no, this was a really bad idea. Yet, it was a phenomenal idea. We, we stayed in there and we made great memories together. We had great excitement. I must admit, I was pretty sore the next day, but it was worth it and it was fun. And as we continue on this journey with Nehemiah, we're realizing that last week we were wrestling with what does it mean to experience a divine calling, a particular calling on your life? We defined calling, we kind of gave an equation last week, that divine calling equals burden, something that God has particularly burdened you by, plus disciplined prayer, plus your position in life. Where those, two th- where those three things collide, that is the, the birth of calling. But what we're going to realize this week is that where calling starts to take shape, as you're praying through a burden and paying attention to where you're positioned, there's this moment where you go, oh no, if I were to step into this, this would be dangerous, costly, scary. I don't know what it would demand of me. And what we're going to realize this week as we continue to pay attention to what's going on in Nehemiah's story and our own story, what we're going to realize is this. For calling to be transformed into action, courage is going to be required. Courage is is the match that has to be ignited. It has to be struck. It has to be lit. It has to be present if calling is going to be transformed into action. If it's not just going to lay latent in our souls. It may be that last week you actually took some time to write and think about what a calling might look like on your life. Not just a job that makes money, but a calling that provides meaning. And as you start to identify that, it may be, and I think it often is, that for for many, if not most Christians, there's a sense of calling, but it ends up just lying latent down in the bed of our soul because it takes such courage to step into it. It would be unnerving to really run towards it. And so this morning, I want to examine. I want to examine the way that courage interacts with with Nehemiah's story. What it does to his calling and where it comes from. What it does to his calling and where it comes from. In hopes that we too would be the sort of people that translate our calling into action with the courage that's required. Well, 
Let me read to you Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, the text that's going to give shape to our time together this morning. And permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We would be really wise to pay attention this morning. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, <clears throat> excuse me, if it pleases the king and if your servant has have found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he would give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Do you hear it? The calling that began to take shape in Nehemiah's soul through months of prayer and fasting in chapter one has just been enacted. It has just been turned into action. And it required great courage to do so because courage is what transforms calling into action. And the first way that it does that is by empowering your first step. It empowers that first step that is required to, to begin to take up a calling. Did you hear it in these initial verses that it says that Nehemiah allowed his face to be sad in the king's presence, that the king said, why this sad face? Um, in verse two, seeing that you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. It raises this question, is, is Nehemiah just overwhelmed with emotion that he shows up at work a little bit sloppy, like he can't quite contain his emotions, so while at work, his face is sad? The context would say, absolutely not. What we know is that when he first heard about the walls of Jerusalem, he was undone with emotion. We read last week that he wept and mourned for days. But now it's four months later. He has been praying and fasting and planning for four months. And he has just made a strategic and timely decision to allow his unrest and sadness to be seen by the king. This is not Nehemiah being, being sloppy emotionally. This is Nehemiah being strategic and courageous, allowing the king to see him undone by the state of Jerusalem. You see, the first thing we see with, with Nehemiah's courage is something about what courage is not. Courage is not hasty and brash. Sometimes we think that if we were courageous, we would just be people of constant action. Nothing scares me and I'm always pressing in. I have a passion and so I immediately translate it into action. That's not what Nehemiah did. He waited and prayed and prepared. And when the time was right, he made a proper and a courageous decision to begin to engage the king. He wasn't hasty and he wasn't brash. He wasn't overcome with emotion, but he made a strategic decision at the right time. 
His courage allowed him to step in in the right moment, to take that first step. And then interestingly, we also see that courage does not equal not being afraid. Did you see that in, verse, in the second half of verse two? It's when the king says, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. What an honest retelling from a really passionate and powerful leader to say, you know what? I was terrified in that moment. The reason is because the king is saying, if you're undone and you're the one who's supposed to be protecting my safety, there's a certain sense in his question that he's going, Nehemiah, are you fit to keep doing your job? Like he, he's showing concern for Nehemiah, but he's also worried like, hey, are you still in this? Is your head in the game? And incidentally, it, that's probably not the only layer of fear for Nehemiah, but underneath it, if we were to go read in Ezra, what we would learn is that the reason the walls are still down on Jerusalem is because of a decision Artaxerxes made. And so Nehemiah is about to petition the king to say, hey, by the way, would you overturn your previous decision? Because I think, incidentally, it was a bad one. <laughs> he's terrified because he's standing before one of the most powerful men on the planet about to ask him to change his mind, to undo one of his previous edicts. He was very much afraid. But this doesn't mean that Nehemiah wasn't courageous. You see, courage is conviction that's born out in the presence of God that carries us through our fear. And that allows us to be self-controlled, not overcome by emotion. That is beautiful, biblical courage. You see, the first step in responding to your calling is hard. (laughs) It's scary. It's that moment when you're laying in the water behind the boat going, I don't know, I'm having second thoughts about this whole thing. That there's so many things that as God calls you into them, we realize that if I take this first step, everything is going to change, potentially forever. But courage empowers us to take the first step to step out, to expose ourselves. I wanna ask you, what would it look like for you to take the first step on your divine calling? Where the Lord has entrusted you a burden to steward, what would it look like for you to take a first step? I had a really encouraging conversation with a young man who is part of Seven Mile Road. This was a couple of weeks ago. He and I were on a Zoom call and he said, you know, I've got this, this growing passion I know that there's all of these really amazing nonprofits at work in the city of Houston, and I've, I've become aware of some of them through Seven Mile Road, and I'm getting to know others, and they have lots of volunteer needs. They need specific gifts and callings, and, and there's all of these great ministries. And then I also have this growing network of young adults that are friends of mine, young professionals that want to, to be a part of something meaningful. And he said, but oftentimes the needs of these nonprofits and the gifts of all of these young professionals don't quite match up. It's like, we can't quite find each other. And he said, you know, I'm dreaming of creating something that would allow all of these things to come together. Kind of like a nonprofit that would be a, a matchmaker and would allow the church to start to be more unified and all of these people to connect. And as I heard him talking, I was starting to hear like, that's divine burden that you're stewarding. And he's taking those initial steps that's so invigorating, but also a little bit paralyzing because you're going, well, I don't even know where to start and who to talk to and how to organize. It can feel overwhelming, but I've been so proud of him as he's going, I'm going to take the first steps. I'm going to have the conversations. I'm going to see if I can be a part of the solution so that the kingdom of God could come more meaningfully in our city. This is what it means to take first steps. And I would just say this, as you start wrestling with, okay, what's my calling and what would a first step be? I just want to give you this warning. There's a, there's a leadership author and speaker that often says, don't how your dreams to death. 
And I would say don't do that for those close to you either because there's these moments where we start to dream of something. We'll have a calling starting to take shape in our heart and the temptation is going to be, well, how is it going to happen here and, and how is this going to work and how is this going to connect? And all of a sudden we have 10 different how questions that causes us to go, yeah, that's kind of a crazy idea. Maybe not. We've got to be careful as we're wrestling with divine calling like Nehemiah. This is an overwhelming call. But in this moment, he doesn't howl it to death. He doesn't know how all of this is going to work out. And by the time we've studied this whole book, we'll realize there's a lot of things coming for him that he couldn't have forecasted. There's lots of challenge coming in his way that he didn't know how he was going to meet. But he knew that he had a calling from God, and it was the courage to take the first step that was initiating it. I would, I would invite you to think, what would a first step look like for you? I remember in the church planting journey for me when Ashton and I had been praying and wrestling and we knew the time had come to step out. And I was gonna meet with the leadership team of First Presbyterian Church where I had been serving. And I remember it felt like my heart was in my throat because I was going, I'm stepping away from, from a, a consistent and a clear sense of where my paycheck comes from and, and some of these relationships and the comfort. And this is terrifying. And I was going, I don't know. I'm kind of having second thoughts about this. But the calling of God in my soul pressed me through. What would it look like? What conversation has to happen? Where do you need to step out to start to experience the realities of the call on your life? You see, the first thing that courage does is it empowers the first step, but that's not all. That's not all, that as Nehemiah has this initial conversation with the king, he, he asks him if, if he would be willing to send him. And the king says yes. And then immediately you, immediately you realize that Nehemiah didn't just have courage to take the first step, but he actually had courage to envision the final destination. Look back at verses six through eight with me. As soon as the king is showing himself to be favorable to Nehemiah's request, watch what Nehemiah does. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long are you going to be gone and when will you return? So in that question, he's saying, okay, I'm open to this. How long is this going to take? Let's see if we can make this happen. And so it pleased the king and he was going to send me when I had given him a time. And so I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors on the province beyond the river and verse eight, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king forest, that he would make timber uh, to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I'll occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. Do you hear what Nehemiah does there? As soon as he takes the first step and the door starts to open, in his four months of praying and planning, he had envisioned not just what the first step would be, but he could envision the final destination. He said, okay, king, you're in on this? Then this is what I need. I need multiple letters. I'm gonna need lots of timber. He all of a sudden makes a big ask for the king to give generously towards this mission that incidentally is undoing the king's previous edict. He is so bold and courageous in this moment that he doesn't just take the first step, but he envisions the final destination and he knows what it's gonna cost. He says, I'm gonna need a lot of timber. I'm gonna need it for the walls and for the temple and for my own home that he is preparing in this way to step out in confidence. You see, there is courage required to not be mealy-mouthed and half-hearted about your calling. Let's be honest, there's a certain sense when, when a dream starts to bubble up in your heart that to go public with it, to say to someone else, you know what, I, I'm really passionate about this particular issue. Um, when I started to, to cast the vision for what I, what I longed to see in a church plant, there's a certain sense of to really let people in on the whole dream, it felt like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of, I feel exposed or embarrassed to name the, the grandeur of this dream and what all I want to see God do. But there's this reality that courage is required 
to envision the, the final destination, what all it's going to be, that we are not mealy-mouthed or half-hearted about it because we know that this is a calling taking shape from God. As you consider calling and a first step, let me ask you this, what would the destination be? If by the power of God, all that had been placed in your heart were accomplished, what would it look like? What would it look like? Some examples of this for me are uh, Love 146. It's, it's an organization that I've been inspired by the way they've envisioned the destination. Love 146 says, we exist to stop child trafficking. Three words. And they say, they even tack onto the end of it in their longer vision, nothing less. What they're saying is the fact until we know that there are no longer children that are being trafficked into sex trafficking rings internationally all around the globe, until we know that there are no children at risk, no children that are experiencing these atrocities, we will, st- we will continue to have a burden until that is over. We will stop child trafficking, nothing less. That was a vision that was born out of a burden and they named it with such boldness. This is the destination and we won't be satisfied till we get there. International Justice Mission started by Gary Haugen is similar. Gary Haugen realized while trying cases uh, for, the, for the US government, uh, crimes against humanity, he realized that there were millions of people enslaved today. There are 40 million slaves on planet earth today. And he said, I exist from this point forward to abolish slavery in my lifetime. Now, there's a moment when, when you say that out loud, it requires courage to say something that bold, that outrageous. But that's because there's a burden, a calling from God in a heart. My friend and mentor, Jeff Wells, a pastor in the city of Houston here at Woods Edge Church, says that his calling is to see Houston become a city of God. To see a city where, and this is actually what we're leaning into in our 40 days of prayer and fasting, is we're praying for spirit-empowered revival. When you look back at moments where God's spirit does a unique work in a place, when his presence is unleashed, when kingdoms, when his kingdom comes to earth as it is in heaven, there's this beautiful moment where, where actually the percentage of divorce begins to decline. We've seen it in certain places and times where, where crime starts to go down, where, where communities grow thick with connection and neighbors begin to know and love and tend to one another, where prayer begins to, to be bolstered in communities as people really hunger for and enjoy God's presence. There's this There's this dream bubbling up that maybe even right now, God is tilling the hearts of our city and even of people around the globe to to pour out his presence in a new and a fresh way. We wanna pray with anticipation that God could use us to participate in something like that. that, that Houston would become a city of God. It might be that you're wrestling right now with the realities of racial injustice and you wanna see in our city, the church rise up and be a part of something that is so profound and powerful and unifying that people around the country and around the world would begin to crane their necks and say, what's going on in this large and diverse city? There seems to be something distinct and different happening there in the way that people are experiencing unity and movement and healing. Don't we want to be a part of something like that? What is your particular calling and what would it look like to envision the destination if God were to accomplish all that he had put on your heart? I know when I, when I talk in terms of what Love 146 or IJ, IJM is doing or praying for citywide revival, that that may feel exciting, invigorating. It may feel overwhelming. And the truth is that we all have individual calling. It may be that for you, you think, I'm gonna draw a a three block radius around my house and say, I want this to be the most hospitable place to live in Houston. That's my calling right now. 
I'm gonna figure out how to make sure every new neighbor that moves in is welcomed with a handwritten note and knows that there's someone that's praying for them and cares for them. What is your sense of calling and what would it look like to envision not just a first step, but but the long-term destination. And we may not know the full path in between. Don't howl yourself out of it by saying, I don't know what the path is. We're just asking what Nehemiah has is the first step and a picture of the destination. And that courage to name those two things is what turns his calling into action. And it can and would do the same for us. Well, it brings us to a final and really critical question. Where does this sort of courage come from? Where does it come from? The willingness to say, not only have I been able to identify and articulate a calling, but now I'm going to step into it. I'm going to envision what it could become, and I'm in. How do we get to this point? There are two beautiful little hints baked into this text that show us where it comes from for Nehemiah and where it can and would come from for you and I. Look at verse 4 and 8b with me. Verse 4 says this. The king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. (laughs) Almost as if it's a breath. He's been four months praying and fasting about this, and when you seek God with that sort of intentionality and consistency, something happens in the soul. It's like prayer becomes like breathing. The king asked me, he says, so I called out to the God of heaven. He's just, he is in this space where that is what he's doing. He is praying. I, I think there's this reality that disciplined prayer helps shape our calling. Intimate prayer ignites our courage. He has been praying with discipline, but now it has grown to this place of intimacy where it's like breathing. And because he is experiencing intimate prayer, calling out to God in the moment to moment, going, oh God of heaven, help me now. Courage is beginning to flood in. I also think it's worthy worthy to note that the title of God that he uses here, he says, God of heaven. What an interesting phrase. And it's a very specific one in the Old Testament. It is only used three times outside of the exilic writing. So the exilic writing are are moments like Nehemiah and Ezra that are written by exiles, people that are trying to figure out what does it mean to make it back to the land of God. They use that term frequently, but before them, in the writings that they have available to them, this term was only used three times. Genesis 24, when Abraham was dying and he said to his, to his servant, go to a distant land and find a wife for my son. The God of heaven will oversee your journey. As if to say, the God of heaven isn't located in one geography, but he's over multiple nations and he will be with you as you go. Second Chronicles 36, Cyrus, the king 70 years earlier, who had decided to send the initial wave of people back to Jerusalem, said, the God of heaven is calling these people back to Jerusalem. And Psalm 136, a psalm dedicated to praising the steadfast love of God as he has worked through the nations, conquering Egypt, conquering Og and Bashan. It celebrates that in the climax of the psalm at the end is, oh God of heaven, your steadfast love endures forever. As Nehemiah soaked in the scriptures and prayed and meditated for four months, he began to realize, oh, here's a unique name of God that communicates this. He oversees kings and nations and the movement across miles. That's who he is. He's seated in heaven and he sees it all. Those three words for Nehemiah have been born out in an intimate place meditating on the scriptures that when he's standing before a foreign king asking for a mission that's going to spread across the nations, he uses three little words that no doubt recall all of that courage from the scriptures. He goes, oh, God of heaven, God of heaven, 
You've shown yourself in the past. You will do this. A very specific name about the sovereign power of God over all. But then interestingly, look at verse 8b. How does he finish? He says this, the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Where did the courage come from? It came from the confidence that the God of heaven is my God. The God of heaven, who oversees all of the nations, knows me and his good hand is upon me. This is why Nehemiah with such courage leans out. And this, my brothers and sisters, is what happens to us when we are gospel saturated. When we continue to rehearse the good news of the scriptures that comes to its completion in the person and the work, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we begin to realize that simultaneously we serve the God of heaven who sees the end from the beginning. And we serve a God whose good hand is upon us. He is, he is my God. He is your God. That we know in the good news of the gospel that God is a holy and a righteous sovereign God over all and that he came for us, that he knows you by name, that he lived the life you were supposed to live and died the death you deserve to die and conquered Satan and sin and hell itself and is now seated at the right hand of God saying, come to me all who are weary. I will give you strength. I will be with you. My good nail-scarred hands will be on you for comfort and for strength. When we rehearse and we believe the beauties and the goodness of the gospel, something happens in our soul. When the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, he, he helps us to believe and to receive and to feel the love of a good God of heaven who is my God and he's with me. Brothers and sisters, I want us to be the sort of people that, that so meditate on the affection of God shown in the person and the work of Jesus that we, like Nehemiah, would say, the God of heaven is my God. He's with me. Because that sort of gospel courage that starts to settle down into our bones and help us to stand tall, that is what will allow us to take the first step on our calling. That is what will allow us to envision the final destination of, oh God, you could do anything. If you could conquer and save me in that way, if you could come for me, you could do anything. And so God, I'm in with great courage on your calling on my life. Let us be the sort of people that with gospel courage translate our calling into action. Let me pray for us. So God, we love you and we thank you. Thank you, God of heaven, that you know me by name and that you know each person who's listening by name, that you know Haley and Lauren by name, that you called to them and poured out your love on them. God, even as they're about to sing in response to you, I pray that their hearts would be saturated with the good news that you know them and that your good hand is on them as your daughters that you cherish. God, that we would be the sort of people that receive and delight in that grace that we don't just experience disciplined prayer, but we experience intimate prayer that puts courage down in our bones and help us to be the people that act on our calling. God, deliver us from inactivity, from being paralyzed, from being fearful and, and unable to respond. Help us encourage to step out and to go with you wherever it is that you're calling us. We look forward to what you're gonna do in and through our body as we respond to your calling. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.